Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This particular talk comes with a warning, a safety warning, and that is that all of the talks really are insane in that they attempt to encompass a 500-year block of Jewish history in about an hour and a half, but tonight's is particularly insane because, as you would be aware, the further we go in history, the more we know. Yeah, so history is like a road. I'm not a very good at drawing perspective, but imagine a road going back into the past. And the further we get to our present, the more details we know. And so, not only do we know a lot about the last 500 years, I know a lot about the last 500 years. And I have, on each of the centuries that we're going to look at, I've given entire four part courses. So, it's difficult. We are kind of tiptoeing around a great big historical abyss here that we could easily fall into if we're not careful. But what I want to do tonight in the course of the last 500 years of Jewish history, and bear in mind that term itself has two meanings, yeah? It has, uh, oh, before I move on, before I move on, of course, welcome to this course that is sponsored by Chabad South Africa and by Dominion uh, Shul in Melbourne, the Shul of Love. And that's very important to state at the beginning because without their help, we wouldn't have been able to do all this live streaming and so on. But when we talk about the last 500 years of Jewish history, that could mean the last 500 years or it could mean the last 500 years of Jewish history. That's almost certainly not going to be the case that it's going to be the last, but it has definitely driven the Jewish world towards a particular point where we are at a crossroads at the moment. We might come back and talk about that a little later because we know that... All of Jewish history, and we have discussed this so far in every talk, we've contextualized that that is Jewish history. So there's minus 2,000 to use the secular dating. That's 2,000 and that's zero. Then that's minus 1,000, 1,000. We can fill in the 500-year blocks. And as we've discussed many times, Each of those is not just a 500-year block in this massive span of Jewish history, but each 500-year block represents a phase of Jewish history, each of which has a key spiritual project. If we understand the key spiritual project of each of these eras, then all of the details can fall in and be contextualized and make sense. Let's look at what we've done so far. All right, so in the first 500 years that we looked at, the first block that we looked at in this series, we looked at minus 500 to zero. And what's that called approximately? What name is given to round about that 500-year block in Jewish history with its own unique key spiritual project is called? Bayit Sheni, or the Second Temple. And you can use the term Second Temple whether you are talking in a religious context or an academic context You can use those terms. That's awesome. Thank you. Then we looked at a period here, 0 to 500 approximately, which we call 
more encompassing than that, we call it the Talmudic period, the Talmudic period. And that, once again, of course, has a key spiritual project, and all the details fit into that. Then we looked at this extremely important 500-year period from 500 to 1,000, which is called the, no. the Gaonic. The Gaonic. This is the period of the Geonim. The Gaonic. <laughs> and then last week we looked at this 1,000 to 1,500-year period here, which we're calling the period of and I did it in black if I recall, the period of the Rishonim, the first ones, because we talked about how they developed the codes that really led up to the formulation of what Jewish life actually is uh, in our own times. And in an academic discourse, you might talk more about that being the Middle Ages, but where, or, the, or medieval, but uh, everybody understands the concept of the Rishonim. And why we use the term Rishonim, as I keep emphasizing, is that Rishonim refers to that period's key spiritual project because it's the key spiritual projects that are the interior of the continuity of the Jewish people in the world and what they're trying to achieve. As I'm constantly saying, Judaism is not some cultural club and we don't uh, continue surviving and transmitting Judaism simply to hand down the recipe for gefilte fish. There is, in fact, an entire purpose that is being arrived at in the world. And we're going to start seeing some revelation of that purpose in the 500 years that we're going to talk about this evening. So that's enough of an introduction. I'm obviously going to be talking about the last 500 years of Jewish history, in which we're going to see a tension on the one hand, between the Jewish people's search for redemption. Because frankly, by the time you get to this period, we've been in exile long enough. And that is going to become a prominent theme of the last 500 years. At the same time that the Jewish world is adapting to life in the modern period. And that has huge implications for how we adjust in the world generally how we adapt to the great advances of modernity, and what the implications are of that for Jewish identity itself. So we're now going to wipe this, and we're going to zoom in on the last 500 years, but I'm not going to do a single timeline, because that would be ridiculous for this. I'm actually, because each of these centuries is almost like its own entire phase. So I'm going to do five different timelines. We're going to start with, in fact, in fact, I'm, 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 I'm going to try and do them simultaneously. So we're going to start with 1500 and we're going to go up to 1600 in the first of these lines. So 10, 20, to give us an idea. And I... <laughs> Obviously, I uh, wouldn't need to remind this esteemed audience that, in fact, um, they can go to uh, the website that apparently is run with my material on it, and they can, davidsolomon.online, I think it is, and they can hear an entire four-part series, six hours of me talking just about this 100-year period, including an entire talk just on women of this period. Because not only is the 16th century absolutely, totally gepacked with things that are happening, just in Jewish history, even if we look at the kind of 
hovercraft overview that we're going to do now, but even beyond that, we've done entire courses on special topic, lectures on specialty topics within this. This is the century of the Jewish woman. This is the century of the Jewish doctor. This is the century in which all of the redemptive yearnings and Jewish people, uh, of the Jewish people begin to become focused on an entire transformation of the concept of God. Not to mention how that entire project is embedded in wider world history, which we will have to touch upon as well. If you would recall at the end but, um, of last week, uh, and the Jews were expelled from Spain last week. Yep, at the end of the 1400s. And we talked about how just prior to that we'd seen the rise of printing. And we talked also, those of you who were, would remember, we talked about an important figure, a non-Jewish figure, called Johannes Reuchlin, who made this phenomenal statement of humanism, which is classic of that period, that he wasn't going to sign a ban on the Talmud. And that kind of opens up where I want to start this over. And remember, I'm doing five centuries. So I can only spend about 15 minutes on the 16th century. So if I talk about things, they are important. But I want to focus at the beginning of this century on a very, very unique Jewish community that's going to really be a focal point of many of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And that community is Venice. And you would know that Venice was one of the places that Jews went to after the expulsion. Not everybody could get to somewhere as nice as Venice because you had to have a bit of money or you had to be famous. Most Jews were scattered throughout the Ottoman Empire and elsewhere. Some went elsewhere in Europe as well. If we talk, for example, someone I didn't mention last week, and I obviously don't have time to go into figures I should have mentioned last week, but it's impossible not to mention the fact that someone like Don Yitzhak Barbanel, who was effectively the spiritual if not and political leader of Spanish Jewry at the time of the expulsion who was actually offered to be allowed to stay by Ferdinand and Isabella because they realized that he was running their entire economy and they even offered to provide him a minion and kosher food and so on he refused to stay and he went with his son to Venice and Italy uh, in general and so did a great uh, number of other figures that I will maybe come back to in a moment but while my focus on Venice here is the fact that in 1510 the reason I paused is because I want to say one thing about Venice before I actually talk about Venice and that is that there's, a, there's, a, there's really a profound link there's a profound link between what I spoke about with Johannes Reuchlin at the end of the 1400s and Venice at the beginning of the 1500s. What is that link? Anyone want to venture? And, and this is a very, very underestimated phenomenon in Jewish history, which kind of changes everything. People say, ah, oh, when does the period of the Rishonim become the period of the Acharonim? And this is one of the candidates for that moment. And it happens in Venice. And it's an outcome of what Rochelin did. And that is the fact that in from 1517, to 1520, 1519 to 1523 in Venice was the first printing of the Talmud. And that's when they made the decisions that completely transform Jewish learning. We sometimes forget that. 
Anybody who learnt the Talmud prior to the 16th century was learning it from a manuscript. It was the 16th century printers who decided, oh, let's put the Gemara in the middle, let's put Rashi on one side, let's put Tosfat on the other. And we take that for granted. We think all Jewish learning is based on that idea, but it's actually a 16th century idea and it's totally transformative. And that happens in Venice. But something else is going on in Venice as well. And obviously there are things that we need to background in world history, but we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, because uh, you have to understand, there are so many possibilities lining up in my head as to what we're going to focus on. So I have to stay very careful about this. It's not, it's not a trick. It's just we need to stay focused on the narrative so that we can stay, we can make coherent sense of it. Because so many fundamentally important influential things are happening in the world kind of at the same time. The world is changing. It's a world of exploration. It's a world of science. We start to see the cracks in the, the old world's perception of things. I mean, Copernicus is here and his entire revolutionary idea of how we see the relationship of the sun and the, the earth and the planets. But in 1517, for example, is the very same year that Luther bangs his theses on the church door at Wittenberg to start the reformation of the church, a kind of spiritual embodiment of what was happening in the sciences. And that suddenly it's all about the self as a spiritual concept. At the same time, the rise of the Ottoman Empire, which we'd started to see already. We talked about it briefly last week from the middle of the 15th century. In 1517, listen to that. In 1517, in the same year that Luther starts the Reformation, is the year that the Ottomans capture Yerushalayim that they captured Jerusalem and it's the same year that the Ottoman Empire declares itself a caliphate. So huge rumblings are happening in both of the great ideologies. There's a very, very important episode in Jewish history that I sometimes talk about at great length. And if I was to give it its proper treatment now, I would find that half this talk had gone and I'm still at the beginning of the 16th century. So I'm going to rely on the audience's knowledge of this in some ways and to fill in the details but of course it is Venice that in around 1510 we start to see an idea and remember I've said this before that when anti-semitic ideas come into the world they soon become very trendy and people go oh that's a good anti-semitic idea I think we'll try that over here and of course in this particular point in history is when the city of Venice decides, oh, it would be a good idea if we make all our Jews live in one concentrated area and we build a wall around it with a curfew so that if for whatever reason we need to know where our Jews are, we know where to find them. That idea, of course, is called a ghetto and the ghetto was taken from the ghetto Nuevo in Venice. And subsequently became an idea that became uh, very popular for anti-Semitic regimes. The Venice ghetto is still new in around 1520. And the story I'm referring to, which I've spoken about many, many times, but I keep emphasizing, is crucially important to an understanding of not just the 16th century, but basically the whole of the next 500 years, is of course the story of 
you know it. As soon as I say it, you're going to go, oh, yes, that's what he's talking about. Well, I'll give it to you in extreme brevity because I can't go into too much length of this, but you all know it. It is the fact that uh, in the around 1520 or the early 1520s in the Venice ghetto, there turns up an individual who announces himself as an emissary of the lost 10 tribes of Israel, who have been living all this time on the other side of the mystical river, Sambachion, that can only be crossed on Shabbat. And he's there to announce that redemption is at hand and he wants an audience with the Pope. And uh, his name is David Haruveni. And so they get him an audience with the Pope and due to the Pope's influence, he takes letters and he goes all around Jewish communities around the Mediterranean and then he eventually ends up in Portugal. And at the height of the Inquisition, but they welcome him because he's not technically a Jew, he's a member of the House of Israel. And there he meets this young man called Diego Pires. And Pires is very inspired by Molcho, by, 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 by Rouveni, and he converts to Judaism by himself, circumcises himself, changes his name to Shlomo Molcho, and the two of them then go on this huge mystical tour of the Mediterranean Jewish communities all around over the next couple of years, inspiring people towards the Geula, towards redemption. Now it's happening and Molcho is undergoing extreme acceleration in learning and he's uttering prophecies and he's writing books. We have all of their documentation. We even have their physical objects still. Molchan Ruveni is a hugely influential moment, of course, eventually. And this to unpack this story completely is really to understand the times in which they are living, is that by the time you get to 1532, Molcho and Ruveni decide that they are going to go to uh, Charles V, who is the emperor of the Habsburg Empire. He is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire that we've discussed in the last couple of weeks. And they want to put an idea to him that they have discussed with the Pope, who's Clement VII, who is one of the Medici Jew-friendly popes, and they put him to this idea and they say to, because they say the redemption's not going to happen. Listen carefully to this, because this is what they're telling Clement in the (laughs) 1530s. Redemption's not going to happen until there is an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel backed by Western Christianity. And the Pope agreed with them. And they went to Charles. And Charles... Now, you have to understand who Charles is. Charles's grandparents were Ferdinand and Isabella, who kicked the Jews out of Spain. Charles's uncle was Henry VIII, who'd just taken an entire country, England, out of the church. And Charles has just presided over the deity at Worms that excommunicated Luther. He's not in the mood for these Jewish romantic adventures. And he takes Molcho and he burns him as a heretic in Mantua in 1532. And he sends Rouveni back to Spain in chains. This has a very, very tragic ending, but it is an unbelievable, not story, it's historical fact. It is the spark of the spark of what is going to become a huge redemptive yearning that's going to infuse this entire 500 year period. One person who was completely overwhelmed when they heard about the martyrdom of, of Molcho was, of course, Yosef Karo. And we discussed Yosef Karo last week. We need to write him on the board again. So we've got Ruveni and Molcho as a... I mean, <laughs> their story was just so influential and inspiring to so many people because for the first time since Beta, we started to believe that maybe... 
I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but maybe this idea of having a Jewish state in the land of Israel was something worth thinking about. That would be a redemptive step. We're not even anywhere near ideas of nation states or nationalism or any of the things that are going to characterize the modern world. But already Jews are starting to think, well, wait a minute, we don't have to be in Golis. There is another way. And Yosef Karo, when he heard about that, uh, was overwhelmed with a desire to die as a martyr like Molcho. But in the end, that wasn't to be his fate. His fate, of course, was to take all of the great codes from the Rishonim, as we discussed last week, to weld them together and to create the Shulchan Aruch. Meantime, the Ottoman Empire is becoming more and more magnificent. Suleiman the Magnificent, the great emperor, he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem round about this time. Yep, you know, those famous walls that are still there. Yep. But in order to really understand the 16th century, we have to look at its most extraordinary individual. And the reason why this extraordinary individual, who's not only probably the most impressive Jew of the 16th century, but one of a very, very small list of candidates that would be the most impressive Jew of the last 2,000 years, the reason why we don't know as much as perhaps we should about that person is because that person is a woman. And of course, you know who I'm talking about. Anybody who's out there who's watching this is nodding your head knows that, of course, I'm going to talk about Dona Grazia Mendes, whose personality and uh, efforts and resources and just sheer will defines the Jewish 16th century. Donna, I mean, we could talk about a number of so many women of the 16th century that made phenomenal impact. We could talk, for example, about Benvenida Brabanel and her efforts on behalf of Spanish and Portuguese Jewry as they were expelled. But if we had to choose one, and in this context we can only choose one, and I can even talk about her for two minutes, it's Donna Grazia Mendes. Because she, of course, was a uh, born in the heart, or after the expulsion, in the heart of Portugal, uh, grew up in a very solid Murano family. And the, Murano, the serious Murano families were the ones who were outwardly Christian. They ticked that box for the government, but at home they're still keeping Shabbat, they're still keeping kosher, they're still putting on tefillin, they're still going to the mikvah, they're doing all of the things that Jewish life demands, and, but on penalty of death if they are discovered. Although in Portugal, the authorities weren't looking too closely just yet. But she grew up in that milieu and she married well. And then her husband passed away. She went to live with her, her brother-in-law and he passed away. And those two brothers had amassed an enormous fortune, which she then inherited. Uh, and she spent incalculable amounts of money and resources on helping literally tens of thousands of Jews get out of the clutches of the Inquisition and created a huge network of uh, pathways, really, that she then used her own shipping company to help. She gave people money, she gave them food, she gave them 
directions to have an entire network across Europe to help Jews get to the Ottoman Empire. That was the first part of her career until it, things became so dangerous that she herself eventually had to go to first to Italy, Venice, Ferrara, and so on, until even she had to make her way to the uh, Ottoman Empire, where she arrives in Constantinople and soon becomes a close associate of Suleiman. By the way, during her duration in Italy, she had, of course, sponsored the Ferrara Bible, this incredible translation of the Tanakh into Ladino. There's, and along the way, her, one of her primary emphases is to support Torah scholars and those who are engaged. She sets up yeshivot wherever she goes. And eventually she arrives in the Ottoman Empire. Now, it is around about that time. I remember, I'm going hovercraft, so you, can, you, you need to see in detail how this works. But it is around that time that there is a shift in the focus of the church. Whereas we'd had some Jewish-friendly popes, now we get some very, very ugly ones like Paul IV and so on. And the Inquisition is starting to clamp down and they are trying to clamp down on these escape routes that Donna Grazia has set up and they uncover one in Ancona, in the port city in Italy of Ancona. And in the year 1556, they begin burning two Jews a week in Ancona. This is in the middle of the 16th century, ladies and gentlemen. This is not the middle of the 12th century. This is the middle of the 16th century. They are burning Jews in Ancona. Donna Grazia Mendes uses all of her resources and networks to organize the first ever full international boycott economic of an entire city. She literally introduced that idea into the world. And very, very soon, Ancona gave in and stopped burning Jews in the public square twice a week. And eventually, but, but that came at tremendous cost for Donna Grazia and her networks and so on. But nevertheless, it, it, it marks a huge moment in Jewish political influence. Then she is given a land grant for the north of Israel. And she and her son-in-law, Yosef Nasi, set about restoring the north of the land of Israel and literally repairing from scratch the entire city of Tiberias, of Tiberia. And they go a long way to creating the conditions that is going to lead to the north of Israel, particularly areas like Tzfat, to become not only economic hubs within the Ottoman Empire, but also great places of Jewish learning and spirituality. So anywhere you look in Donna Grazia, you're going to see an ocean of detail. And I've only given an absolute skimming over, but this individual is incredible and kind of defines it. Interestingly enough, <laughs> there's a segue there because... One of the things that the Pope, the church was doing was they introduced this thing called the Index Librorum Prohibitorum. That means that, you know, printing's going everywhere. Jews are printing whatever they want. We can't have that. We're going to have a list of prohibited books. And yet, despite that, 1558 in Mantua, exactly 26 years after Shlomo Molcho was burnt in Mantua, is the first printing of... We mentioned it last week. The first printing of the Zohar. And a young man takes his brand new printing of the Zohar and he's living in Egypt. He's born in Jerusalem, living in Egypt, and he takes his copy of the Zohar and he goes and he sits on an island in the Nile owned by his uncle for, some people say, seven years, some people pay ten years, say ten years, but eventually he ended up in Tzfat. And when he first got there, people thought he was there to study under the great Kabbalists that were living in Safford at the time. But they soon realized that he was not there 
to study or learn, he was there to teach. And he arrived at about the age of, uh, about the age of 35, 36. And over the course of the next couple of years, he downloaded uh, the most phenomenal transformative vision of God that really has been the most influential spiritual idea in Judaism of the last thousand years, and then he died. And he didn't write anything down. And of course, his name is Isaac Luria, or who we refer to as the Ari. The godly Rabbi Yitzhak is the only person in Jewish history that gets that kind of acronym. Now, as you can imagine, since the thought of the Ari is kind of like the guiding thought of, of Jewish mysticism and, 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 and Jewish theology, really, of the last 450 years, it would be ridiculous to try and summarize it now. But basically, this is what that would look like. You see, the people had sat with the Zohar for a few hundred years now, but they really weren't sure about how I mean, it, 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 it was phenomenal, but they, they didn't have keys by which to really unpack its deeper spiritual foundations. And that's really what the RE did. When you realize, when you read the RE, that it's really all a massive commentary on the Zohar. But what he's telling you is this. And it's a very, very transformative but modern idea. And we're going to come back to it. God left this place before it was even created. This place was created in a vacuum that God then re-entered in a mode of light that could be sustained, but even that mode of light was too great and it smashed inside this vacuum of creation. It is our task as humanity to rebuild the broken vessels inside this space so that they be, can become a vessel that can contain the light of God, so that God can reside in this world. This phenomenal notion, which we now very kind of, you know, t-shirt slogan called Tikkun Olam and so on, is really, really just an incalculable contribution in Jewish thought and in Jewish purpose and in Jewish identity and in Jewish spirituality that we're going to come back and talk about a little bit more. I want to come back for a second to Yosef Karo, who, by the way, is living down the road from the Ari in Tzfat. And I see that it's already 32 past the hour and I'm still on the 16th century, so you can imagine what that's going to mean. Uh, but I, I need to point out, because it, it, once we ground the 16th century, things will then hopefully make sense, is that uh, Yosef Karo when he writes the Shulchan Aruch, sees it printed in his own lifetime, what we want to realize is that by now, and once again, an entire topic in itself is the rise of Eastern European Jewry during this period, such that by the time Yosef Karo publishes that, there are people in Eastern Europe, and basically Eastern Europe is anywhere east of Berlin, so let's call that Poland and Lithuania and all these places, we're not quite yet at the full-blown pale of settlement Shtetlville yet. But there are enough people with enough traditions who are putting up their hand going, oh, wait a minute, you spoke about the Rambam, you spoke about the, uh, the Rosh, you spoke about the Rif, but we're over here and we've got our own customs and traditions and interpretations that we would like included in this great synthetic document called the Shulchan Aruch. And that, of course, leads to Moshe Isselis' famous tablecloth, the Mapa, that is then subsequently printed with the Shulchan Aruch. So these are important ideas. 
And another important crack in the wall happens also here that I'm going to mention. I'm going to leave the 16th century in a moment, but I just want to talk about a figure such as Azaria Dorossi. Azaria Dorossi is a person who is starting to ask questions. He's not a full-blown Apicorus, but he's starting to write pamphlets in which he's asking questions. Not even about Torah, just about Midrash. That maybe we don't actually have to take every Midrash as literally as we might. And that itself caused such a stir within the established Jewish world that they even uh, drafted uh, a note of excommunication against Azaria de Rossi. And that note of excommunication was sitting on the desk of Rav Yosef Karo and was due to be signed in the morning, but he passed away during the night and it was never signed. It's a phenomenal thing, but what was happening in the Jewish world was a microcosm of things that were happening in the wider world around it. And not all cataclysms are necessarily for bad. However, if we're talking about Eastern Europe, um, then obviously, what's the first place that's going to come to mind when I say Eastern Europe? Poland. Sorry? Poland. Poland, but more specifically, Prague. Prague. And of course, as soon as I say Prague, you're going to say Maharal. the Maharal, right? And uh, the famous story of the golem, and I don't need to tell this learned audience what a golem is, it's basically, you know... Exactly. Okay. <laughs> One's talking to you right now. <laughs> you know, some kind of made of clay, automaton made of clay that runs around and does your laundry and bashes up anti-Semites and does what you need it to do. Or we're not sure entirely about the veracity of the legends of the golem. But what is perhaps more acutely uh, important for us is the entire uh, oeuvre of the writings of the Maharal, which were focused very much for the most part on this deep, deep mystical exploration of Jewish identity and what it means to be the Jewish people in the time of exile and what the nature of the relationship of exile and redemption is as far as the Jewish people is concerned. And the Maharal was also among the first to sign up by saying that the Jewish people have their own unique mode of living. The Jewish people have their own unique mode of communicating with God called Nevoah, called prophecy. Very, very much in the line that we looked at last week in the period of the Rishonim with people like Yehuda Halevi and the Kuzari and so on. But completely kind of developing a kind of alternative mystical spirituality to Judaism parallel with the Ari, although those two are not connected. But the Maharal is here. So I just want to remind people that when we talk about the Maharal, it's not just about the God. There's also the 18 volumes of the Maharal's writings. But I'm actually now going to go on to the 17th century. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at the times, and it's absolutely absurd. Uh, the 17th century. So, um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to call this seven, uh, 1600 and we're going to call this seven. We will get there. We will get there. But I will have to move on. But we have uh, so it's 10, 20, 30. We'll call that 17. We'll call that 1650. 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 70. Just to, just to make sure that we don't get uh, too lost over here. I, I need to take a pause now and I need to talk about something else that's actually going on. Because, um, once again, it's impossible to understand Jewish history unless you embed it somewhat in world history. And we need to look at what's going on here. And what's going on here in world history, if we were to look from afar, 
because we're not going into the details of world history, but anyone who's looking at this period is going to realise that what we're going to start seeing now is more than just a few Renaissance guys running around going, oh, I've had an idea about this, I've had an idea about that. We're actually going to start to see the full-blown enlightenment, capitally enlightenment about to happen. In fact, right here, you know, we've got Galileo. He's on this board, but he's not Jewish. But Galileo, for example, if, if, if Copernicus was working things out mathematically, you know, a century before, Galileo was saying, well, I took Copernicus mathematical models and I looked at it and I'm actually seeing it. And then, of course, by the time we get a little bit further in the century, we get the big daddy of enlightenment thinking, which, of course, is Descartes. Once again, not Jewish, don't get confused. It's not Rabbi Descartes, it's René Descartes. And Descartes really is the one that famously kind of starts modern thinking by saying that we're going to deconstruct everything that we know and we're going to build it up from absolutely nothing. The only thing I can certainly know, the only thing at the end of the day that I can absolutely say that I know is true is that someone is thinking. Cogito ego sum, and because I'm thinking, therefore, chances are I exist. But from that, he's going to build up an entire picture which are effectively the principles or a kind of like a geometry of rational thinking. What does rational thought look like if you were to build it up from scratch like that? So it's immensely influential. But what I want to talk about in a Jewish sense, first of all, for much of this century... You know, we're, we're not, and, and, and I know that there are things going on elsewhere in the Jewish world and we'll touch upon them a bit, but I am now focused in Europe for much of this century. And what we can see in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, we're not quite yet at the full pale shtetl thing yet. Most Jews are still living in urban environments in this period, but what we are seeing is that with, 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 with some growing shtetlization happening in Eastern Europe as, 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 as Jews are starting to expand into places like Romania and Hungary and, and the Ukraine and Belarus. And, and, uh, but what we're seeing is that, well, I don't need to tell you that the uh, 17th century contains on the level of world history. It's not just a few Enlightenment thinkers running around. There are also some big political upheavals happening. We're starting to see revolutions. We're starting to see European countries move towards not quite full-blown democratization yet, but we are starting to see the breakdown of these feudal system in political systems. And that's also reflected in the Jewish world because amazingly, we had, throughout this entire period, a kind of proto-parliament that existed throughout much of European Jewry called the Council of the Four Lands of Greater Poland, Little Poland, Galicia and Podolia and Volinia. And they were known as the Council. And they would come together several times a year to conduct business on behalf of the Jewish community, but literally would send delegates from towns as a parliament. This is quite a unique... Uh, a unique phenomenon in Jewish history uh, and, and certainly unique within, within European culture at the time. We uh, kind of precipitated modern democracy by quite some time in that. It didn't last, unfortunately, but it was the basis of, of, uh, of, of, of a great many ways in which European Jewry was very, very organised and tight at this period during the early modern period. 
But if you wanted to be anywhere at this period, if you wanted to be anywhere, where would you be? If you could be anywhere in this first half of the 17th century, where would be the place that would give you the greatest freedoms intellectually and physically, was basically the superpower of the world at the time, certainly economically, wasn't too bad militarily, and it was pretty much the center of everything. Where would that be? Not quite. It would be, in fact, Amsterdam. Remember that the Dutch really are kind of ruling the world at this point. They're going to get overtaken soon by England and France. But at this point, they invent the stock market. Their ships are exploring all around the world. They are bringing numerous things backed by mercantile interests all over the world into Europe and so on. Plus, Amsterdam was, Holland was Protestant. And therefore, it had a totally different view about religious freedoms and about religious thought and so on. And the Jewish community was doing very, very well there. But it obviously had to behave. Just because they were Protestants doesn't mean they weren't from. And so they weren't going to tolerate too much nonsense. But if you behaved yourself, Amsterdam was a good place to be. Now, in Amsterdam in 1648, and I point to this year, and people are going to go, oh, that's an obscure point, David. Why are you mentioning that? Is because in 1648 there was a very, very influential text published. Not everyone's going to know about this text. Not everyone, unfortunately, is in the next couple of weeks is going to have a chance to look at this text. But it is an important text in so many ways. It's probably, in my opinion, the most influential and important Jewish text of the 17th century. And it is, of course, published in Amsterdam in 1648, is Rabbi Naftali Bachrach's Emek Hamelech. Now, in Emek HaMelech, which is an entire giving over of Lurianic Kabbalah, of the Kabbalah of the Ari, but uh, synthesized with other mystical thought streams that are coming into Jewish mysticism. But this book is profoundly ecstatic and it predicts the redemption will happen in right now. Basically, it predicts it for 1648, 1649. And the tragedy is, is that 1648 and 1649 did not end up being years of redemption. They ended up being years of horrendous tragedy because those two years are the, what is known uh, by his, you know, the world and historians generally as the Chmielniki uprisings and which we call Tat and Tach. Tat and Tach simply mean you know, 408 and 409, which are the Jewish years of 1648 and 1649, in which uh, the Cossack peasantry under Chmielniki came through and obliterated hundreds and hundreds of communities across Eastern Europe in basically the worst anti-Semitic massacres before the Holocaust. Uh, and not only... Uh, did they cost, you know, tens of thousands, up to 100,000 lives, but people died in the most awful ways. It was a classic case of the Jews being caught between the peasantry and the nobility. Those of you who are interested, of course, will know that there is still a statue of Shmeliki in, in, uh, in Kiev today. He is a, a hero for Ukrainian nationalism, which obviously has found it difficult to Di, you know, divest itself of its underlying anti-Semitism. I want to come back to Amsterdam for a bit because uh, there is a figure in the middle of this century who is rampantly important. 
and that. Well, I don't know if you heard about it, but in the middle of the uh, 1600s, England underwent a revolution. Uh, and uh, during that time, when that happened, a rabbi in Amsterdam called Manasseh ben Israel. And you've got to know at least something about Manasseh ben Israel, because if you're sitting around at that fancy dinner party and Jewish history of the 17th century comes up and you don't know Manasseh ben Israel, it's going to be embarrassing. So I'm going to tell you what you need to know right now, because of course, and I'm sure you all know, but you'll just, uh, um, we'll just review it anyway. Manasseh ben Israel writes to Oliver Cromwell. And he says to him like this. Now, you know, you remember from last week, the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, that famous year 1290. From 1290 to the middle of the 17th century, it was illegal to be a Jew in England. But now there's a revolution. And now Oliver Cromwell's in charge. And Manasseh ben Israel writes to him and he says, listen, you're a good Protestant boy. You know that the Messiah is not going to come, whether it's your Messiah, our Messiah, whichever Messiah, is not going to come until the Jews are spread to all four corners of the globe. England is a corner of the globe. So you need to admit the Jews back into England as a redemptive exercise. And Cromwell goes, oh, that's a very good idea. And they begin to allow Jews back into England. Not without any official, not with any official decree. If it had come with official decree, it might have come with all sorts of restrictions. But they allowed them back in, and so Jews start coming back into England around this time. This is a very, very significant point for all of us sitting in the countries that we are sitting in now. While Manasseh bin Israel is in London having high tea with Cromwell, one of his students at the Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam, is sitting up the back of the shul, reading, well, first of all, he starts by reading Rumbum, and then he starts reading a bit of Crescas, and then eventually he finds his way to Descartes. Baruch Spinoza, who we're not going to focus on too much, because some people would argue he really gets an acceleration out of Jewish history, because he's really a, a world thinker, is takes Descartes' principles of kind of the geometry of rationalism and says, I'm going to build a geometry in the same type of way, the rational principles of God and of everything. And eventually ends up with something that looks a lot like pantheism. But that is a whole... That, I just want to talk about Spinoza there as a context because he connects with so many things that we are talking about. And of course, Spinoza is the classic philosopher of the great rationalist enlightenment, where they're trying to extract the rationality of the universe as much as human thinking can acquire it. But what's really happening as well, at the same time, and that's why it's phenomenal, because it's at the same time, uh, and we can't, we can't leave the 17th century, can we, Yossi, without talking about this? And that, of course, is... The events. <laughs> the events. They're, they're known as the events. And if you go anywhere in the Jewish world, 
you'll find entire pages ripped out from communal records for this period because, as you know, one of the places that had undergone a bit of a renaissance in the middle of the 1600s, we're gonna, there are a number of places that are important that we haven't got really time to look at right now, but one of the places that underwent a bit of a, a resurgence was Jerusalem itself. And there's a guy wandering around Jerusalem. He's about 40 years old and he's got a very, very troubled soul. Yeah, we have now managed to, there's so much literature on him that we've actually even able to make kind of a clinical diagnosis of Shabtai Tzvi, that he was in fact a manic depressive bipolar schizophrenia, schizophrenic. So, but they don't know those, those times. They don't look at these things as mental health issues at the time. They say that he just had a very troubled soul. So he went for a cure to a young Kabbalist living in Gaza called Nathan. And he walks into Nathan of Gaza to find a cure for his soul. Because since the Ari showed how you can actually use Lurianic Kabbalah to give people a tikkun, a correction for their soul, and it will help their mental health issues and so on and calm them down, he goes in to see Nathan of Gaza. And when he walks in, Nathan of Gaza stands up and says to him, I'll tell you why your soul is going through all these highs and lows. Because your soul is a microcosm of the Jewish people because you are the Messiah which is a very interesting thing to say to someone who is manic, depressive, bipolar, schizophrenic. That then, it's an interesting form of therapy, that then led Shabtai Tzvi and Nathan of Gaza to go on their own whirlwind tour of Jewish communities everywhere, whipping up ideas for redemption. But this time, unlike Molcho and Roveni, whose mission they were definitely aware of, these guys, even though it had happened 120 years earlier, these guys were pretty solid behind the idea that it's not just the redemption idea, Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. This idea swept right through the Jewish world. And it's all very well for you at home and for you in the audience to sit there going, oh, if I lived in Europe at that time, I wouldn't have got caught up in that. I would have known that was a bogus. You would have. And some of you have even proven that you would have. And in fact, because... Because that swept right through the whole of the Jewish world. Even the non-Jewish world was talking about it. Everybody was consumed with this idea. And of course, Shabtai eventually announced. Because he wasn't some idiot. He was very charismatic. He was very learned. He wasn't just an archi from the comic books. He knew what he was doing. And he said, I'm going to be brought before the Sultan. And he was arrested. He's, where was he kept when he was arrested? Australian audiences know this. In, in where? Gallipoli. Gallipoli. So he said, I'm going to be brought before the Sultan. And when I'm brought before the Sultan, I'm going to take the Sultan's crown off his head and I'm going to put it on my own. And that will be the moment of the redemption. And of course, true to that prophecy, he was brought before the Sultan. And the Sultan, through his viziers, basically said to him, look, uh, you know, you've got a choice here. You can either convert to Islam or we'll kill you. And you have 10 minutes to decide. And he said, I don't need my 10 minutes. Where do I sign? Where's my free copy of the Quran? That the Messiah converted to Islam then set about a wave of demoralization and devastation across Europe that was even greater than the fervor, the messianic fervor that had been behind him. And for the next many decades, the whole 
concept of Shabtai Tzvi was a massive cringe embarrassment for the Jewish world. People didn't want to talk about it. Before we launch away from the 17th century, because I can already see the time, and I'm going to have 35 minutes to do the last three centuries, and that's just, that's just cruel on everyone. But uh, it's important just to come back to the Enlightenment for a moment. Because by the time we finish this century, you know, Galileo, Descartes, they're working, they're scratching the surface. Is everything all right over there? Yeah. Okay, good. But by the time you get to the end of this century, you've already arrived at figures like Isaac Newton. And you know, Newton, <laughs> Newton's Principia Mathematica is published at the end of this, where he is able to take mathematics and use it He's not the first person to notice gravity. Other people had noticed that things fall. But he's the first person to describe it mathematically. And he uses that, those principles, to describe the universe itself and the movement of the planets and the heavenly bodies. And if we can use our minds to understand that, what can we not conquer with these new principles of rationalism and mathematics? And that's not long followed after by someone like uh, Leibniz, and the whole development of calculus and so on, which is the mathematical engine that's going to take us into the 19th century. So, uh, you know, for the next 200 years. So these are huge moments. All right, and I mentioned them because they are important uh, to background that. I'm now going to... <laughs> I'm looking at the time. Maybe I could catch up if I do the 18th century in five minutes. <laughs> uh, people go, why is he laughing? Well... <laughs> because um, I'm insane. Now, 1700 to 1800. Uh, 1750, 10, 20, 30, 40. You know, I'm going to start this particular century with a woman. Because I like women and I like seeing them in Jewish history when we don't offer, you know, like last few weeks I haven't really spoken much about women and people go, oh, you've got to speak about women. You have to realise that this entire course could be done in parallel with women in Jewish history. But I'm going to start here because if you really want to understand day-to-day -day life in the early 18th century, then we have the window into it because of the great amazingly detailed diaries of Gluckel of Hamlin. And I can't go too much into her there, but she left those diaries for posterity for her children and they were translated and so on. And they're an incredible window into the vibrancy of Jewish life, particularly in Germany and Eastern Europe and how people conducted business, how people went about communal life. She talks about all of the turmoils at the end of the 17th century, the Sabatine events and so on. We also need to remember that at this time, all of the rabbis of Europe are on Shabtai watch. Because we've never had a Messiah whose followers didn't say he's coming back. And that was very much the case with Shabtai Tzvi. And every once in a while, some Malchiparchi would pop up and go, Oh, I'm on a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. And all the rabbis of Europe would have to go, No, you're not. No, you're not. But I also need just to preface one point about the 18th century before we launch on it. And that is that if you, is this water? 
if you throw, because I've been speaking non-stop really, if you throw a stone in the 18th century, it's going to land on an ilui, a genius, or a machlokus. We have more geniuses and more disputes in the 18th century than just about any other concentrated time uh, in Jewish history, except maybe the, uh, maybe the first century. All right. And that really is where I'm going to start, because I, one of the greatest rabbis of the first kind of quarter, first third of the 18th century, one of the great iluyim, one of the great geniuses, uh, hothoused geniuses, who went on to become really a spiritual giant in European terms, is uh, and is sitting here, is Rabbi Yohonatan Eibschitz. And one day, another genius, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, gets up and says of Yohonatan Eibschitz, of Rabbi Eibschitz, you're a Sabbatean. That particular machloket, which I regard as the second greatest machloket of the 18th century, split entire communities, basically between Western and Eastern Europe, about whether or not you really thought that Ibschitz was a Sabbatean or whether you thought he wasn't. Interestingly enough, that debate continues till today, not in the same polemic way, but in two completely different sides of that debate. If you go into the religious halachic world, then you can buy Rabbi Yohannesson Ibshit Sfarim, you can buy his books in Me'er Sharim, he's completely 100%, but that's kosher. But if you go into the academic world, they will tell you, Had that he was a Sabbatean Mukhlat. So that kind of difference is still being carried on today, but at the time, it was ripping communities apart in a very, very ugly way. One of the great sages of Europe that they asked to consult on this question was only 30 years old and already regarded as one of the great sages of Europe, who was, of course, Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, who we will come back to in a moment. And even the Gaon of Vilna said, oh, I'm not going to get involved. But there were various other people. But I, 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 I've got to move on because we have, this is just a period that is so saturated. Why, why is this century so important? And of course, once again, like the 16th, like the 17th, the 18th, I've also done an entirely separate four-part series on. <clears throat> Why it's so important for us is because this is the century in which really the modern Jewish world as we know it today is created. All of the great streams of Judaism emerge forth from the 18th century and its geniuses and its machlokas. But if there is one singularly profound and overwhelming transformation that happens in the middle of the 18th century it is of course and we're going to look at the two or three three or four maybe major streams of thought that emerge from the 18th century but the one that you would see probably from the greatest distance in space would be Hasidism and of course the rise of the Baal Shem Tov now in about 1736 is when the Baal Shem Tov reveals himself as this transformative spiritual teacher. 
I obviously in this series don't have too much time to go into historiography. That is the theory of history and how do we know things and what can we, what theories can we account, how can we account for various phenomena at various times. But I just want to mention one here because there is a very famous theory within historiography about the rise of the, of the Hasidic movement and it's called the vacuum theory. The vacuum theory is that basically, as a result of all the horrendous destabilizations that had happened in the latter half of the 17th century, the, on the one hand, the Tatantach massacres in Eastern Europe, the <coughs> devastation caused by the Sabbatean events, the increasing encroachment of Enlightenment ideas that were sucking up youth, the interest of young people, but also rabbinic leaders themselves were going deeper and deeper into their own analytic thinking about rabbinics and a huge alienation was being... I don't know if you can imagine a generation where people are alienated from their spiritual leadership, but that, <laughs> thank you. But that certainly was a critical factor in this period. And now we're getting hundreds of thousands of Jews living in this growing agriculturally based pale of settlements in the shtetls that are now becoming a huge mode of life and they feel a tremendous disconnect. What do they care about what a guy in you know, Amsterdam or Prague or, or, or thinks of a Tosfus? What's that going to help them in their daily spiritual life? So that's called, and, and that plus all the devastation that's happened, that's called the vacuum theory. But that theory doesn't do justice to the contribution of the Baal Shem Tov. A, a tremendously mysterious figure who basically the only thing we really can say about him with any degree of certainty from this distance is that he's probably the most charismatic person that you could imagine coming across anywhere in Jewish history. Literally someone that just upon seeing them or meeting them could fill you with inspiration and fervor and transform your entire spiritual outlook such that it affected millions of people around the globe. And the Baal Shem Tov was himself just a very simple, itinerant, wandering mystic, a teacher, but he brought a, an entirely new perspective. And it's very difficult to encapsulate that perspective. But if we were to try and encapsulate that perspective, <coughs> it would go something along the lines of You don't need to be, I mean, learning Torah is important, but you don't need to be a great Torah scholar to have an inherent connection with God. God is a part of every Jewish person you have in your soul, an essence of God that allows you an instant connection with him. Prayer is greater than learning because it affects that profound connection and if we're going to have a spiritual connection with God, it's got to come from the heart at the end of the day. And it's got to come with joy. To be a Jew in this world is not to have lost the lottery. It's to have won the lottery. And God is in everything and God is all around us. And you as a Jew have a phenomenal potential to worship God, to have that connection that can literally transform the world. I'm not going to wax on more about the Hasidic revolution. It's very close in some ways to the prophetic revolution that we're going to talk about next week in biblical times. 
I don't need to wax on about it because there is so much written on the uh, on, on what Hasidism brought to the world. We know that obviously the Baal Shem Tov handed the movement over to the Magad of Mitzrich and in the next generation it kind of split into different dynasties and sects and so on. But that is a phenomenal uh, transformation. Not everybody was on board with that. And probably the most famous opposition came indeed from a person I've already mentioned, <coughs> who of course is the Gra. Now, when we say the Gra, I don't want people to go, oh, the Gra. Because uh, <laughs> the Gra is, the Gra is, and that's what's amazing about the 18th century, because as great as the Baal Shem Tov was in transformative, charismatic spirituality, the Gra was a, the equal giant in the field of rabbinic scholarship. The Gra was not only, he was the Elui Ha'iluyim of the 18th century. Uh, and he was someone who not only had a super brain, but he used that super brain 19 hours a day for decades to become this enormous, we still don't know how he knows half of what he knows. I mean, the Gra is just enormous in his breadth. He goes, basically, there's one methodology, you have to know everything. That's the Gra's methodology, and the Gra did it. And the Gra, once again, a figure that we could go on and on about, and I've lectured on separately, how important his, I mean, his methodology is, is not as simple as I just made out, but it does have an effect on, on, on the rabbinic world. But it's the Gra who pronounce, pronounces an excommunication against the entire Hasidic movement. And that really is the biggest machloket, the biggest dispute of the 18th century in Europe, because that doesn't just divide communities, that divides families, that splits everything apart. Massive. People were not even marrying each other. People were not eating at each other's tables. People were not talking to each other. This was a huge split within the Jewish world. The fact that Hasidim and Mitnagdim can sit together today on the bus in Haranoff is really a product of the 19th century. While we're still in the 18th century, those splits are very, very real and they are ripping the Jewish world apart. As well, of course, is the fact that the Hasidim are not only having to fight the Gra, they're having some other distractions as well. For example, round about here in the 1750s, <laughs> just to show you how, how uh, mad the 18th century was, is that you get a figure like Jacob Frank. Jacob Frank is probably the naughtiest boy of the 18th century who gets up one day and doesn't just claim that he is a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. Anyone can do that. I'm also a reincarnation of Jesus and every other Messiah you can possibly think of and cause huge distraction to communities right around Europe until eventually he went with a few hundred families into the Christian church himself. I want to focus in the, just for one more minute in the 18th century on this very important phenomenon. But people might say, oh, David, you don't really have time to go into that. But I think it's indispensable for the general theme I want to raise here. And that is the fact that what is special about the year 1740? What's special about the year 1740? Anyone? I'll tell you, right? Just so you know, my studio audience are all nodding. They all know, but I'm going to remind them anyway. 1740 is the year 5,500. 
So if we go according to what we, I think, mentioned last week, this idea that the, that the Ramban brings out and so on, Jewish mystics bring out, that every one of these millennia is a day of creation. That means that we're not just on Friday, which is when the Zohar appeared. We are now on Friday afternoon. We're like, we're seriously in the last 500-year period before Shabbat. So now is really the time for this redemptive push. And what we find is that some of the greatest sages in the entire Jewish world, some in the Jewish world are making Aliyah, they are making a movement towards the land of Israel. The Gaon of Vilna never went himself, but he did send his students. But what we see is around 1740, just before, just after it, we see the arrival of the Orachaim from Morocco. We see the arrival of the Rashash, of Shalom Sharabi from Yemen. And we see the arrival from Italy and Germany of Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Ramchal. And it always amazes me what would have happened? What would have happened if the Ramchal had met the Rashash? What would have happened if the Ramchal had met the Baal Shem? What would have happened if the Baal Shem Tov had met the Rashash? What would have happened if any of them had met the Orachayim? You can imagine that redemption could have come just from one of those encounters, and yet, remarkably, they never actually managed to affect those encounters. The Ramchal, by the way, and I know that it's running late, and I only got 20 minutes to do the next two centuries, but I can't not spend a minute on the Ramchal because his influence is so pervasive even down till today. If you're going to talk about the 18th century, even for five minutes, you're going to talk about the Ramchal. Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato was born in Padua, 1707. Completely conversant with all of Torah literature, that's, you know, Tanakh, Talmud, Bavli, Yerushalmi, Midrash, intimately familiar with Kabbalah Ta'ari, Lurianic Kabbalah, knew several languages, had read everything in philosophy up to his day, had read everything in Italian literature from Dante down to his own day, and was even writing his own poems and plays. The Ramchal was not your average 18-year-old. His work and his theological unpicking of Judaism is still with us today. The whole emphasis that he placed on understanding Judaism, uh, the closest thing we could say really as a, as, 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 as a mystical logic. And obviously this is not a talk where I can go into that in great detail, but you don't get escape from velocity from the 18th century without talking about the Ramchal. But I do need to move on because, oh, I haven't even, no, 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 I can't move on yet. I can't move on yet. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to shorten the 19th century. We're still on the 18th. We're still on the 18th. Uh, the 18th century, it's impossible not to understand. We said it's the origin of the modern world is that, and to understand the conditions of Jews in the 18th century is that the greatest philosopher in Europe in the 1750s and the 1760s and the 17th centuries, is in fact a Jew, and he's living in Berlin with a tolerance patent, meaning you're not Jews are not allowed to live in Berlin, but he's got special permission from the king, because he's basically the German Socrates, they call him, and that, of course, is Moses Mendelssohn. Now, I know that some very from audiences are going to go, Ah, oh, Mendelssohn, Apicorus! They're going to start screaming, running outside the room. And you should know that Mendelssohn, let me say this, is not the father of Reform Judaism. Can we just cut that one right away? 
Moses Mendelssohn was a Shomer Shabbat and religious Jew to the day he died. He is, however, possibly guilty of being kind of like one of the granddaddies of the Haskalah. What happened to all his kids? Well, that's the famous thing. Oh, Mendelssohn, what happened to all his kids? Right? If we go into everyone and what happens to their kids, then, you know, that's a whole other story. Yes, yes, yes. There are shortcomings that we can pick in his worldview. But he made contributions to Jewish thought that are still with us and extremely important. His essay, I mean, <laughs> he became famous because he won an essay competition on metaphysics. The runner-up to that competition was Kant. And, and, and Mendelssohn's essay, Jerusalem, is a defense of Judaism in the modern age. That with all your big stories about the Enlightenment, the Jewish people have an inherent contribution that they are making to the world. Mendelssohn believed that Jews should be studying a wide variety of secular subjects. There's no question about it. And yes, most of his descendants were not Jewish. But I'm not here to make that uh, pejorative remark. That, uh, that, that, that means that there was something perhaps about Mendelssohn's project that, that, was, that fell short of being able to transmit that to subsequent generations. Maybe he went too far in what he was thinking. But I believe, I believe Mendelssohn's an important cog in the development of Jewish consciousness in the world today. You know, the Jewish people gave the world the Shabbat. They gave the world the idea of freedom. All of things are, these things are incredibly important when you plant them in the context of Jewish life in the modern era. And of course, Mendelssohn's student Solomon Maimon and so on. But I'm just... And of course, at this time, we start to get the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And these are revolutions that are affecting Jews. We're not at emancipation yet, but the American Revolution in the 1770s starts from ground zero. That Jews have equal rights with other people in that country from the very beginning. It's the first country that from the beginning Jews had equal rights. And then the French Revolution, where, you know, liberté, fraternité, égalité, and they're saying, oh, so everybody's equal, right? Yeah, everybody's equal, even the Jews? And Okay, even the Jews. And so also now in France, we've got Jews, and then you're going to have Napoleon stomping around Europe saying, oh, you know, I'm going to force this equality on people, but you're not going to be French Jews, you're going to be Jewish Frenchmen. And that is a, an immensely seductive idea that also plays into influences on, uh, on, on his grandchildren as well. And just before I leave the 18th century, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Just before I leave the 18th century... <laughs> I, I, of course, I don't know if you heard about it, but um, in 1770, they discovered, they, the British, Captain James Cook, or he was Lieutenant James Cook, discovered a place called Australia, which is where we are. And I started this century on a woman. I'm going to end it on a woman because there were a number of Jews in the first fleet since we're talking about Jews from the beginning. Jews were in Australia from the beginning. And as you know, I've given an entire four-part series on Australian Jewish history. But the most famous Jew of the late 1700s and early 1800s in Australian Jewish history is also a woman. And it is, of course, Esther Abrahams. And I've not got time now, obviously, to go into her life in detail, but it's absolutely fascinating. Those who want can find where I talk about that or others talk about that in different contexts. But that's as much as I'm going to do on the 18th century. I'm now going to go on to the 19th century. Do we have a squidgy? We have a squidgy. I'm going to uh, wipe off. Unfortunately, I have to wipe off the 16th 
in order to do the 19th. And uh, that's a shame because I wanted to stand back and look at it all, but we don't have room for that. The 19th century. So it's going to start in 1800 and I've got about three minutes to do it. Uh, 1800 to 1900. And so really what we're going to see here and those of you who are sitting there at home going, oh, he got his old structure wrong. He spent too much on this or too much on that. You imagine being me and trying to give the last 500 years in an hour and a half. It's not simple. But we're going to do the 19th century. And of course, the figure you want to talk about at the beginning of the 19th century, who kind of exemplifies the 19th century, is a, it's just a, a simple Jewish guy living in the, in the uh, Judengasse in Frankfurt, in basically the Frankfurt ghetto, who takes an interest in coin collecting and then goes on to advise various rulers and kings on how to invest their money. And he, of course, in the Napoleonic Wars are destabilizing Europe and he makes money off both sides in those conflicts and emerges here as Rothschild. Uh, they're basically called Rothschild because there was a red shield outside their door in the Frankfurt ghetto. And Rothschild is kind of like, in economics, what Mendelssohn was in philosophy. People go, Phew. they hear about Rothschild dining with kings and something like that. That's a Jew from Frankfurt is doing that. If he can do that, what can we not do? Because by the time you get to here, make no mistake, Rothschild, the Rothschild family had the largest private fortune in the world. They were Bill Gates on crack at the beginning of the 19th century. And that astonished them. Well, we're not at emancipation yet. Jews aren't supposed to be doing this, but Jews were doing this. Many, many famous jokes about Rothschild, but I don't have time to go into them right now. I wish I did. My favourite, however, is, <laughs> is, is the story of, 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 of two Jews sitting around going... Uh, um, in Europe in the early 19th century, and one says, you know, if I was Rothschild, I'd, I'd be wealthier than Rothschild. And the other guy goes, how so? He goes, because I do a bit of teaching on the side. <laughs> now, but the big story, the big story of the 19th century is really the rise of two kind of major movements that have come to identify the Jewish world ever since. And on the one hand, all of these incursions from the Haskalah, I don't know why I'm pointing to you every time I say the word Haskalah, the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, uh, all, and, 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 and the gradual erosion of inequality for Jews. In other words, it didn't happen at once, but during the course of this century, we are going to see a gradual emancipation of Jews. That means that Jews are going to get equal rights with other human beings in any given society, not everywhere at once, but over the course of the century we're going to see that. And as those things happen, it's natural that Judaism itself is going to come under some sort of inspection and review and leads to, gives rise, especially in Germany, to what becomes known as Reform Judaism. And of course, Reform Judaism, and I'm not going to go into details on what that is, you can close your eyes and imagine it, but Reform Judaism, of course, then triggered a reaction to Reform Judaism that we call Orthodoxy. Always remember that there was no Orthodox Judaism before here, there's just Judaism. 
Orthodoxy is a term that arises in reaction to reform. And I don't like the term orthodoxy, but we only use it for historical purposes. And for that reason, the Hasidim and the Mitnagdim all band together to really put the shutters up. People like Tam Sofer and so on. I mean, others like Rav Shimshin and Rafael Hirsch in the 19th century are trying to bridge various gaps between these two. But this is an inexorable split that is still with us. But of course, then you've got people like Moses Montefiore, related to Rothschild and so on, who were starting to go in another direction and to invest once again in the land of Israel and its infrastructure. We're starting to see the rise of the Yishuv into a more coherent settlement of the land of Israel. And that then, that then leads to people towards the end of the 19th century, such as the Bilu movement in Russia and so on, people saying, you know what, Yala, let's go to the land of Israel and let's rebuild the land of Israel because we can't see conditions getting any better in the exile. Emancipation and the Enlightenment have not brought the Jews the happiness they were looking for. Maybe it's time that we went and we rebuilt the land of Israel. And that, those pushes and those ideas eventually, of course, and the discussion of a thing that became known in Europe as the Jewish problem. And the Jewish problem was that despite everyone's best efforts, Jews just keep getting killed. So one solution to that, of course, is a Jewish national homeland. And therefore, by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, you've, of course, got Herzl and the First Zionist Congress at Basel. Still a pipe dream. Still an impossible reality, a pipe dream. But, nevertheless, it starts taking shape. And then, I've got six minutes to do the 20th century. You know... I think that when historians hundreds of years in the future look back at the 20th century, they're not going to necessarily see all the detail that we're going to see, but what they will see is this. At this period, we're starting to see waves of migration. On the one hand, Jews are migrating out of Europe towards places like America en masse. That is one solution. One solution is that we just go and live somewhere and we can forget all about these issues. I'm going to move from the shtetl of Schnippischnock and I'm going to go and I'm going to live in Wisconsin. Fine. The other idea, of course, is waves of Aliyah that we're seeing, the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, the third Aliyah, each with it, brought with it its own character. But what historians are really going to see is they're going to see this unbelievably miraculous phenomenon called the revival of Hebrew. Because it is nothing short of astonishing that in a very few short decades, Ivrit, Hebrew, spoken Hebrew, the living holy language became the spoken language of the settlement of of the land of Israel, of the Jewish settlement of the land of Israel, started by Eliezer ben Yehuda, is kind of like uh, uh, a reincarnation of Yehuda Hanasi, and he teaches his own kids, starts a kindergarten, speaks Hebrew, and eventually it takes rise. That's a phenomenal thing. But eventually, we have this thing called the First World War. We've got World War I, and of course, once we're talking about World War I, we have to say that we know that 
The Ottoman Empire comes crashing down by the end of World War I. The famous Ottoman Empire, uh, it is the British Allenby, the British who take the uh, Jerusalem and they take Palestine and they start the uh, British mandate in Palestine. And we know, of course, uh, from the concept of Jewish history that it was effectively an Australian Jewish general, John Monash, who won that war. We also know that when the British, around the time the British took uh, Palestine, they issued this incredible document, the like a decree of Cyrus, the Balfour Declaration, which they handed to the Jewish people, which from the superpower of Britain, which was the superpower of the day, saying basically, we're going to back the idea of a Jewish state. In other words, your pipe dream of 20 years ago has suddenly become this incredible possible reality. No one knows how that's going to happen yet, but at least we've got a major world power behind that idea. Uh, if there's one figure spiritually that kind of defines the mandate era, it's going to be Rav Cook. Uh, because at the end of the day, Rav Cook is the icon of religious Zionism. The idea that the settlement of the Jewish people in the land of Israel in the 20th century is a divinely inspired, redemptive idea. First of all, I know it's a bunch of chazafressing uh, amaratzim, but at the end of the day, you need to have that physical redemption. You need to have that foothold in the land of Israel in order for the spiritual blessings to eventually flow. It's a very, very, and of course, uh, Rav Cook didn't uh, live to see just how prophetic it was, uh, his idea that a European Jewry would ultimately have no uh, future because, of course, right in the middle of this uh, century is the Shoah. And I'm not going to talk about the Shoah because it is an event that almost exists outside of history. Um, it's, it, it's an event that, um, you know, people, a lot of people who went through the Shoah came out of it saying that they didn't believe in God and no one's going to judge them for that. But from a bit of distance, when you look at history, it's almost impossible to imagine the Shoah could have happened without God because it is such an intensely metaphysical manifestation that seems to sit outside history and it is followed immediately in historical terms by Hakamata Medina, the rise of the State of Israel. And of course, the State of Israel has been a primary concern of the Jewish people for the last uh, 72 years. It has been the central focus, but it's by no means the end. I have a minute to finish off the 20th century and I need to talk. There are some things I do need to talk about. First of all, uh, if we were to look a little bit back, I think historians are going to say that the whole concept of, if we were to wrap up, you know, what we've done the last 2,000, 2,500 years, the idea that that here uh, is Vatican II, because that is where the Catholic Church, after nearly two centuries of unremittent and persistent persecution eventually turned around and said okay so maybe you know we're not going to blame you anymore for killing Jesus we're going to respect you as our older brothers and sisters and we're going to put an end to this enmity between the Roman Catholic Church and the Jewish people that's not to say that there aren't still some Catholic anti-Semites running around but basically for since that time the Roman Catholic Church has not been considered existentially within the Jewish world as one of its great threats and that, I can tell you, is fairly new 
within Jewish history itself. And long may it continue, the full reconciliation between Yaakov and Esau, as we saw in last week's parasha. And the really key moment, of course, is 1967, because in 1967, we see the unification of Jerusalem. Uh, we have Harabayit, and now we have a, almost a full deck of cards where we can control our destiny going forward. Perhaps the fact that we didn't level Harabayit when we could was one of the greatest things that the State of Israel ever did. That restraint that they exercised in that is perhaps what has managed to enable the State of Israel to move forward in a world that does demand a certain level of ethical and moral behaviour. I'm not going to get too much into the politics of that because I know that the minute I do I'm going to start annoying people. But uh, 1967 is a very, very big moment in Jewish history. And since we do have Harabayit in our hands, we have certain responsibilities towards it. And one of those is to work towards the rebuilding of the temple. And I'll say that without any, uh, any fear of contradiction. Whether we achieve that or not, that's definitely an imperative of the Jewish people. Around 67 and all the triumphant events that happened around there, of course, we see a lot of people coming back to Judaism to seek a more authentic and spiritual connection with Judaism, the whole rise of what we call the Baal Teshuvah movement. And perhaps there's no one more at the forefront of that than uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And really, the career of the Rebbe, I mean, the Rebbe is really, the life of the Rebbe is really uh, a picture of the 20th century in a way. And uh, it needs to be, uh, I, I haven't left myself enough time really to talk about the importance of his contribution and his career, but he effectively became the spiritual powerhouse of the Jewish world, certainly for the second half of the 20th century, not just for his own followers. And remember, remember, contemporary Chabad is only one iteration of the Rebbe's teachings. They can take many, many different forms, but he's not only the spiritual powerhouse of the world, but he's the guide for Jews right across the waste, suburban wastelands of America and the industrial wastelands of the Soviet Union. And he really propels pretty much what, what Molcho and Ruvani were doing uh, four, 500 years earlier, propelling the Jewish people towards their ultimate redemptive purpose. I believe that if we are characterizing our generation by anything, it is the fact that we now live in what I call the golden age of Jewish publishing. More editions, more translations, more commentaries than at any other time in Jewish history. And of course, we have seen in our own generation the shift to an entirely new technological platform, the internet. And unlike other spiritual systems and religions that go, oh, that's evil, the Jews, of course, have jumped on the internet just as they jumped on printing to disseminate Torah, to disseminate spiritual concepts, to disseminate a lot of rubbish as well. But at the end of the day, we're not scared to use the medium of humanity to establish the continuum of the Jewish people, to bring God into the world, to reveal the oneness of the divine into the world, and ultimately to bring the world to peace. I have gone three minutes over, and I beg your forgiveness for that. It has been a complex lecture, and I'm sorry that it's been a bit scattered. Once again, I'm going to think of things tonight that I didn't talk about, that I'm going to be annoyed that I didn't say. But that's basically a picture of the last 500 years. It is the tension between our drive towards establishment. We, the period is called the Aharonim, the latter ones. 
Here we are adapting this, really no other way of understanding the period of the Acharonim than taking the great Shulchan Aruch from the end of the period of the Rishonim and adapting it to modern life as we move forward. But it doesn't really do adequate a description to all the incredible spiritual upheavals and evolutions that have revealed more and more about the criticality of the Jewish people in the world. The Gaon of Vilna said, in the middle of the 18th century, the Gaon of Vilna said that this last 500-year period is divided into two, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. By 1990, said the Gra, we must have established a, an, inter, an, an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel backed by Western Christianity heard that before. He said that in the middle of the 18th century, people thought he was loco naboko. And what happened? He was right. So when the grass says what's going to happen in the period of Mashiach bin David, which is from 1990 to 2240, in other words, up to the year 6000, we can't dismiss it. And the grass tells us that the great project of that period is the realization on behalf of the world that there is no conflict between Torah and science. And that ultimately, the Jewish people are an inherent part of the natural order of the world and of humanity because there is a God in the world and the Jewish people are the revelation of that. And so what we need to do is to, as the RE told us to, to pick up the sparks that we find in this exile and to bring them together as we come together to create that vessel that can contain the divine in the world. So thank you for listening to all of that and I'll see you next week. We, once again, I want to thank Chabad South Africa and uh, Dominion Shul, the Shul of Love in Melbourne. And next week we are going to be diving all the way back and we're going to look at the Tanakh. We're going to look at every book of Tanakh and its context and where it sits and bring us up to where we started, which is the end of the Bible, the uh, beginning of the Second Temple period. And we're going to do that whole period. I look forward to you uh, seeing you for that adventure. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.